0: <clears throat> nobody, 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 nobody. Nobody, 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 nobody. nobody reads short stories.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy.
2: And I'm Megan.
1: And you're you.
2: And you're watching Nobody Reads Short Stories. So tonight's Um, episode is going to run about 30 minutes. So here is our lovely, my lovely co-host Ray reading The Mortal Immortal by Mary Shelley.
1: The Mortal Immortal by Mary Shelley. July 16th, 1833. This is a memorable anniversary for me. On it, I complete my 323rd year. The wondering Jew? Certainly not. More than 18 centuries have passed over his head in comparison with mine. I'm a very young immortal. Am I then immortal? This is a question which I have asked myself by day and night for now 303 years, and yet cannot answer it. I detected a gray hair amidst my brown locks this very day that surely signifies decay, yet it may have remained concealed there for 300 years, for some persons have become entirely white-headed before 20 years of age. (sighs) I will tell my story and my reader shall judge for me. I will tell my story and so contrive to pass some few hours of a long eternity, become so wearisome to me, forever can it be? to live forever, I have heard of enchantments in which the victims were plunged into a deep sleep to wake after a hundred years as fresh as ever. I have heard of the seven sleepers. Thus to be immortal would not be so burdensome, but uh, the weight of never-ending time, the tedious passage of the still succeeding hours, how happy was the fabled Juad, But to my task, all the world has heard of Cornelius Agrippa, His memory is as immortal as his arts have made me. All the world has also heard of his scholar, who unawares raised the foul fiend during his master's absence and was destroyed by him. The report, true or false, of this accident was attended with inconveniences the renowned philosopher. All his scholars at once deserted him. His servants disappeared. He had no one near him to put coals on his ever-burning fires while he slept, or to attend to the changed colors of his medicines while he studied. Experiment after experiment failed, because one pair of hands was insufficient to complete them. The dark spirits laughed at him for not being able to retain a single mortal in his service. I was then very young, very poor, and very much in love. I had been for about a year the pupil of Cornelius, though I was absent when this accident took place. On my return, my friends implored me not to return to the alchemist's abode. I trembled as I listened to the dire tale they told. I required no second warning, and when Cornelius came and offered me a purse of gold, if I would remain under his roof, I felt as if Satan himself tempted me. My teeth chattered, my hair stood on end, I ran off as fast as my trembling knees would permit. My failing steps were directed whether for two years they had every evening been attracted, a gently bubbling spring of pure living waters, besides which lingered a dark-haired girl whose beaming eyes were fixed on the path I was accustomed each night to tread. I cannot remember the hour when I did not love Bertha. We had been neighbors and playmates from infancy Her parents, like mine, were of humble life, yet respectable. Our attachment had been a source of pleasure to them. In an evil hour, a malignant fever carried off both her father and mother, and Bertha became an orphan. She would have found a home beneath my paternal roof, but unfortunately, the old lady of the near castle, rich, childless, and solitary, declared her intention to adopt her. Henceforth, Bertha was clad in silk, inhabited a marble palace and was looked on as being highly favored by fortune. But in her new situation, among her new associates, Bertha remained true to the friend of her humbler days. She often visited the cottage of my father and when forbidden to go thither, she would stray towards the neighboring wood and meet me beside its shady fountain. She often declared that she owed no duty to her new protectress, equal in sanctity to that which bound us. Yet still I was too poor to marry and she grew weary of being tormented on my account. She had a haughty but an impatient spirit and grew angry at the obstacles that prevented our union. We met now after an absence and she had been sorely beset while I was away. She complained bitterly and almost reproached me for being poor. I replied hastily, I am honest if I am poor. Were I not, I might soon become rich. This exclamation produced a thousand questions. I feared to shock her by owning the truth, but she drew from me and then casting a look of disdain on me, she said, you pretend to love and you fear to face the devil for my sake. I protested that I had only dreaded to offend her while she dwelt on the magnitude of the reward that I should receive. Thus encouraged, shamed by her, led on by love and hope, laughing at my late fears, With quick steps and a light heart, I returned to accept the offers of the alchemist and was instantly installed in my office. A year passed away. I became possessed of no insignificant sum of money. Custom had banished my fears. In spite of the most painful vigilance, I had never detected the trace of a cloven foot, nor was the studious silence of our abode ever disturbed by demoniac howls. I still continued my stolen interviews with Bertha, and hope dawned on me hope but not perfect joy for Bertha fancied that love and security were enemies and her pleasure was to divide them in my bosom. Though true of heart, she was somewhat of a coquette in manner and I was jealous as a Turk. She slighted me in a thousand ways yet would never acknowledge herself to be in the wrong. She would drive me mad with anger and then force me to beg her pardon. Sometimes she fancied that I was not sufficiently submissive and then she had some story of a rival favored by her protectress. She was surrounded by silk-clad youths, the rich and gay. What chance had the sad robed scholar of Cornelius compared with these? On one occasion, the philosopher made such large demands upon my time that I was unable to meet her as I was wont. He was engaged in some mighty work, and I was forced to remain, day and night, feeding his furnaces and watching his chemical preparations. Bertha waited for me in vain at the fountain. Her haughty spirit fired at this neglect, and when at last I stole out during the few short minutes allotted to me for slumber and hoped to be consoled by her, she received me with disdain, dismissed me in scorn and vowed that any man should possess her hand rather than he who could not be in two places at once for her sake. She would be revenged, and truly she was. In my dingy retreat, I heard that she had been hunting, attended by Albert Hoffer. Albert Hoffer was favored by her protectress, and the three passed in cavalcade before my smoky window. I thought they mentioned my name was followed by a laugh of derision as her dark eyes glanced contemptuously towards my abode. Jealousy with all its venom and all its misery entered my breast. Now I shed a torrent of tears to think that I should never call her mine and anon. I imprecated a thousand curses on her inconstancy, yet still I must stir the fires of the alchemist, still attend the changes of his unintelligible medicines. Cornelius had watched for three days and nights, nor closed his eyes. The progress of his Olympics was slower than he expected. In spite of his anxiety, sleep weighed upon his eyelids. Again and again, he threw off drowsiness with more than human energy. Again and again, it stole away his senses. He eyed his crucibles wistfully.
0: Not ready yet, he murmured. With a- another night pass before the work is accomplished. Winsy, you are so vigilant. You are faithful. You have slept, my boy. You slept last night. Look at that glass vessel. The liquid it contains is of a soft rose color. The moment it begins to change its hue, awaken me. Till then I may close my eyes. First it will turn white, and then emit golden flashes but wait not till then. When the rose color fades, rouse me."
1: I scarcely heard the last words, muttered as they were in sleep. Even then he did not quite yield to nature.
0: "'Winsey, my boy,' he again said. "'Do not touch the vessel. Do not put it to your lips. It is a filter, a filter to cure love.' You would not cease to love your Bertha. Beware to drink. And he slept.
1: His venerable head sunk on his breast and I scarce heard his regular breathing. For a few moments I watched the vessel. The rosy hue of the liquid remained unchanged. Then my thoughts wandered; They visited the fountain and dwelt on a thousand charming scenes never to be renewed. Never. Serpents and adders were in my heart as the word never half formed itself on my lips. False girl, false and cruel. Nevermore would she smile on me as the evening she smiled on Albert. Worthless, detested woman, I would not remain unrevenged. She should see Albert expire at her feet. She should die beneath my vengeance. She had smiled in disdain and triumph. She knew my wretchedness and her power. Yet what power had she? The power of exciting my hate, my utter scorn, my all but indifference. Could I attain that? Could I regard her with careless eyes, transferring my rejected love to one fairer and more true? That were indeed a victory. A bright flash darted before my eyes. I had forgotten the medicine of the adept. I gazed on it with wonder, flashes of admirable beauty, more bright than those which the diamond emits when the sun's rays are on it. Glanced from the surface of the liquid, an odor, the most fragrant and grateful stole over my sense. The vessel seemed one globe of living radiance, lovely to the eye and most inviting to the taste. The first thought instinctively inspired by my grosser sense was,
0: I will, I must drink.
1: I raised the vessel to my lips. It will cure me of love, of torture. Already I had quaffed half of the most delicious liquor ever tasted by the palate of man. When the philosopher stirred, I started. I dropped the glass. The fluid flamed and glanced along the floor while I felt Cornelius's gripe at my throat as he shrieked aloud,
0: "Wretch! YOU HAVE DESTROYED THE LABOR OF MY LIFE!
1: The philosopher was totally unaware that I had drunk any portion of his drug. His idea was, and I gave a tacit assent to it, that I had raised the vessel from curiosity and that fright at its brightness and the flashes of intense light it gave forth, I had let it fall. I never undeceived him. The fire of the medicine was quenched. The fragrance died away. He grew calm as a philosopher should under the heaviest trials and dismissed me to rest. I will not attempt to describe the sleep of glory and bliss which bathed my soul in paradise during the remaining hours of that memorable night. Words would be faint and shallow types of my enjoyment or of the gladness that possessed my bosom when I awoke. I trod air, my thoughts were in heaven. Earth appeared heaven, and my inheritance upon it was to be one trance of delight. This is to be cured of love, I thought. I will see Bertha this day, and she will find her lover cold and regardless, too happy to be disdainful, yet how utterly indifferent to her. The hours danced away, the philosopher secure that he had once succeeded, and believing that he might again began to concoct the same medicine once more. He was shut up with his books and drugs, and I had a holiday. I dressed myself with care. I looked in an old but polished shield which served me for a mirror. I thought my looks to be wonderfully improved. I hurried beyond the precincts of the town. Joy in my soul, the beauty of heaven and earth around me. I turned my steps toward the castle. I could look on its lofty turrets with lightness of heart for I was cured of love. My Bertha saw me afar as I came off the venue. I knew not what sudden impulse animated her bosom, but at the sight she sprung with a light fawn like bound down the marble steps and was hastening towards me. But I had been perceived by another person The old high-born hag who called herself her protectress and was her tyrant had seen me also. She hobbled, panting up the terrace, a page as ugly as herself held up her train and fanned her as she hurried along and stopped my fair girl with a, How now, my bold mistress? Wither so fast back to your cage, hawks are abroad. Bertha clasped her hands. Her eyes were still bent on my approaching figure. I saw the contest, how I abhorred the old crone who checked the kind impulses of my Bertha's softening heart. Hitherto, respect for her rank had caused me to avoid the lady of the castle. Now I disdained such trivial considerations. I was cured of love and lifted above all human fears. I hastened forwards and soon reached the terrace. How lovely Bertha looked her eyes flashing fire, her cheeks glowing with impatience and anger. She was a thousand times more graceful and charming than it. I no longer loved. No, I adored, worshiped, idolized her. She had that morning been persecuted with more than usual vehemence to consent to an immediate marriage with my rival. She was reproached with the encouragement that she had shown him she was threatened with being turned out of doors with disgrace and shame. Her proud spirits rose in arms at the threat, but when she remembered the scorn that she had heaped upon me and how perhaps she had thus lost one whom she now regarded as her only friend, she wept with remorse and rage. At that moment, I appeared. Oh, Winsy! she exclaimed. Take me to your mother's cot. Swiftly, let me leave the detested luxuries and wretchedness of this noble dwelling. Take me to poverty and happiness." I clasped her in my arms with transport. The old lady was speechless with fury and broke forth into invective only when we were afar on our road to my natal cottage. My mother received the fair fugitive, escaped from a guilt cage to nature and liberty with tenderness and joy. My father, who loved her, welcomed her heartily. It was a day of rejoicing, which did not need the addition of the celestial potion of the alchemist to steep me in delight. Soon after this eventful day, I became the husband of Bertha. I ceased to be the scholar of Cornelius, but I continued his friend. I always felt grateful to him for having unawares procured me that delicious draught of a divine elixir, which instead of curing me of love, sad cure, solitary and joyless remedy for evils which seem blessings to the memory, had inspired me with courage and resolution, thus winning for me an inestimable treasure in my bertha. I often called to mind that period of trance-like inebriation with wonder. The drink of Cornelius had not fulfilled the task for which he affirmed that it had been prepared, but its effects were more potent and blissful than words can express. They had faded by degrees, yet they lingered long and painted life in hues of splendor. Bertha often wondered at my lightness of heart and unaccustomed gaiety, for before I had been rather serious or even sad at my disposition. She loved me better for my cheerful temper and our days were winged by joy. Five years afterwards, I was suddenly summoned to the bedside of the dying Cornelius. He had sent for me in haste, Conjuring my instant presence, I found him stretched on his pallet, enfeebled even to death. All of life that yet remained animated his piercing eyes, and they were fixed on a glass vessel full of a roseate liquid. Behold, he said
0: in a broken and inward voice, the vanity of human wishes. The second time my hopes are about to be crowned. The second time they are destroyed look at the liquor you remember five years ago i had prepared the same with the same success then as now my thirsting lips expected to taste the immortal elixir you dashed it from me and at present it is too late
1: he spoke with difficulty and fell back on his pillow i could not help saying How, revered master, can a cure for love restore you to life? A faint smile gleamed across his face as I listened earnestly to his scarcely intelligible answer.
0: A cure for love and all things, the elixir of immortality. Uh, If now I might drink, I should live forever.
1: As he spoke, a golden flash gleamed from the fluid. A well remembered fragrance stole over the air. He raised himself, all weak as he was. Strength seemed miraculously to re enter his frame. He stretched forth his hand. A loud explosion startled me. A ray of fire shot up from the elixir, and the glass vessel which contained it was shivered to atoms. I turned my eyes toward the philosopher. He had fallen back. His eyes were glassy, his features rigid. He was dead, but I lived and was to live forever. So sad, the unfortunate alchemist, and for a few days I believed his words. I remembered the glorious drunkenness that had followed my stolen drought. I reflected on the change I had felt in my frame, in my soul, the bounding elasticity of the one, the buoyant lightness of the other. I surveyed myself in a mirror and could perceive no change in my features during the space of the five years which had elapsed i remembered the radiant hues and grateful scent of that delicious beverage worthy the gift it was capable of bestowing i was then immortal a few days after i laughed at my crudility the old proverb that a prophet is least regarded in his own country was true with respect to me and my defunct master I loved him as a man, I respected him as a sage, but I derided the notion that he could command the power of darkness and laughed at the superstitious fears with which he was regarded by the vulgar. He was a philosopher, but he had no acquaintance with any spirits but those clad in flesh and blood. His science was simply human, and human science, I soon persuaded myself, could never conquer nature's laws so far as to imprison the soul forever within its carnal habitation. Cornelius had brewed a soul-refreshing drink, more inebriating than wine, sweeter and more fragrant than any fruit, had possessed probably strong medicinal powers, imparting gladness to the heart and vigor to the limbs, but its effects would wear out, already were they diminished in my frame. I was a lucky fellow to have quaffed health and joyous spirits and perhaps long life at my master's hands, but my good fortune ended there. Longevity was far different from immortality. I continued to entertain this belief for many years. Sometimes the thought stole across me. Was the alchemist indeed deceived? But my habitual credence was that I should meet the fate of all the children of Adam at my appointed time, a little late, but still at a natural age. Yet it was certain that I retained a wonderfully youthful look. I was laughed at for my vanity and consulting the mirror so often, but I consulted it in vain. My brow was untrenched, my cheeks, my eyes, my whole person continued as untarnished as in my 20th year. I was troubled. I looked at the faded beauty of Bertha. I seemed more like her son. By degrees our neighbors began to make similar observations and I found at last that I went by the name of the scholar bewitched. Bertha herself grew uneasy. She became jealous and peevish and at length she began to question me. We had no children. We were in all to each other. And though as she grew older her vivacious spirit became a little allied to ill-temper and Her beauty sadly diminished. I cherished her in my heart as the mistress I had idolized, the wife I had sought and won with such perfect love. At last, our situation became intolerable. Bertha was 50, I 20 years of age. I had in very shame in some measure adopted the habits of a more advanced age. I no longer mingled in the dance among the young and gay but my heart bounded along with them while I restrained my feet, and a sorry figure I cut among the nesters of our village. But before the time I mentioned, things were altered. We were universally shunned. We were, at least I was, reported to have kept up an iniquitous acquaintance with some of my former master's supposed friends. Poor Bertha was pitied but deserted. I was regarded with horror and detestation. What was to be done? We sat by our winter fire. Poverty had made itself felt for none would buy the produce of my farm. And often I had been forced to journey 20 miles to some place where I was not known to dispose of our poverty. It is true we had saved something for an evil day. That day was to come. We sat by our lone fireside the old heartened youth and his antiquated wife. Again, Bertha insisted on knowing the truth. She recapitulated all she had ever heard said about me and added her own observations. She conjured me to cast off the spell. She described how much more calmly gray hair was than my chestnut locks. She descanted on the reverence and respect due to age. How preferable to the slight regard paid to mere children. Could I imagine that the despicable gifts of youth and good looks outweigh disgrace, hatred, and scorn? Nay, in the end I should be burnt as a dealer in the black art while she, to whom I had not deigned to communicate any portion of my good fortune, might be stoned as my accomplice. At length she insinuated that I must share my secret with her and bestow on her like benefits to those I myself enjoyed, or she would denounce me And then she burst into tears. Thus beset, I thought it was the best way to tell the truth. I revealed it as tenderly as I could and spoke only of a very long life, not of immortality, which representation indeed coincided best with my own ideas. When I ended, I rose and said, and now, my Bertha, will you denounce the lover of your youth? You will not, I know. But it is too hard, my poor wife, that you should suffer from my ill luck and the accursed arts of Cornelius. I will leave you, you have wealth enough, and friends will return in my absence. I will go, young as I seem and strong as I am, I can work and gain my bread among strangers, unsuspected and unknown. I loved you in youth. God is my witness that I would not desert you in age, but that your safety and happiness require it. I took my cap and moved towards the door. In a moment, Bertha's arms were around my neck and her lips were pressed to mine. No, my husband, my Winsy, she said, you shall not go alone, take me with you. We will remove from this place. And as you say among strangers, we shall be unsuspected and safe. I am not so very old as quite to shame you, my Winsy, And I dare say the charm will soon wear off and With the blessing of God, you will become more elderly looking. As is fitting, you shall not leave me. I returned the good souls embrace heartily. I will not, my Bertha. But for your sake, I had not thought of such a thing. I will be your true faithful husband while you are spared to me and do my duty by you to the last. The next day we prepared secretly for our immigration we were obliged to make great pecuniary sacrifices. It could not be helped. We realized the sum sufficient, at least to maintain us while Bertha lived, without saying adieu to anyone, quitted our native country to take refuge in a remote part of Western France. It was a cruel thing to transport poor Bertha from her native village and the friends of her youth to a new country, new language, new customs, The strange secret of my destiny rendered this removal immaterial to me, but I compassionated her deeply and was glad to perceive that she found compensation for her misfortunes in a variety of little ridiculous circumstances. Away from all telltale chroniclers, she sought to decrease the apparent disparity of our ages by a thousand feminine arts, rouge, youthful dress, and assumed juvenility of manner I could not be angry. Did not I myself wear a mask? Why quarrel with hers because it was less successful? I grieved deeply when I remembered that this was my Bertha, whom I had loved so fondly and won with such transport. The dark-eyed, dark-haired girl with smiles of enchanting archness and a step like a fawn. This mincing, simpering, jealous old woman I should have revered her gray locks and weathered cheeks, but thus, it was my work. I knew, but I did not the less deplore this type of human weakness. Her jealousy never slept. Her chief occupation would discover that in spite of outward appearances, I was myself growing old. I verily believed that the poor soul loved me truly in her heart, but never had woman so tormenting a mode of displaying fondness. She would discern wrinkles in my face and decrepitude in my walk, while I bounded along in youthful vigor, the youngest looking of 20 youths. I never dared to dress another woman. On one occasion, fancying that the bell of the village regarded me with fairing eyes, she bought me a gray wig. Her constant discourse among her acquaintances was that, though I looked so young, there was ruin at work within my frame and she affirmed that the worst symptom about me was my apparent health. My youth was a disease, she said, and I ought at all times to prepare, if not for a sudden and awful death, at least to awake some morning white-headed and bow down with all the marks of advanced years. I let her talk. I often joined in her conjectures. Her warnings chimed in with my never-ceasing speculations concerning my state. I took an earnest, thoughtful, painful interest in listening to all that her quick wit and excited imagination could say on the subject. Why dwell on these minute circumstances? We lived on for many years. Bertha became bedridden and paralytic. I nursed her as mother might a child. She grew peevish and still harped upon one string of how long I should survive her it had ever been a source of consolation to me that I performed my duty scrupulously towards her. She had been mine in youth. She was mine in age. And at last, when I heaped the sod over her corpse, I wept to feel that I had lost all that really bound me to humanity. Since then, How many have been my cares and woes? How few and empty my enjoyments? I pause here in my history. I will pursue it no further. A sailor without rudder or compass, tossed on a stormy sea, traveler lost in a widespread heath without landmark, or star to him, Such have I been, more lost, more hopeless than either. A nearing ship, a gleam for some far-caught may save them, but I have no beacon except the hope of death. Death, mysterious, ill-visaged friend of weak humanity. Why alone of all mortals have you cast me from your sheltering fold Oh, for the peace of the grave? the deep silence of the iron-bound tomb. That thought would cease to work in my brain, and my heart beat no more with emotions varied only by new forms of sadness. Am I immortal? I return to my first question in the first place. Is it not more probable that the beverage of the alchemist was fraught rather with longevity than eternal life? Such is my hope. And then be it remembered that I only drank half of the potion prepared by him. Was not the whole necessary to complete the charm? To have drained half the elixir of immortality is but to be half immortal. My forever is thus truncated and null. But again, who shall number the years of the half of eternity? I often try to imagine by what rules the infinite may be divided. Sometimes I fancy age advancing upon me one gray hair I have found. Fool, do I lament? Yes. The fear of age and death often creeps coldly into my heart. And the more I live, the more I dread death, even while I abhor life. Such an enigma is man born to perish when he wars as I do against the established laws of his nature. Before this anomaly of feeling surely I might die. The medicine of the alchemist would not be proof against fire, sword, and the strangling waters. I have gazed upon the blue depths of many a placid lake and the tumultuous rushing of many a mighty river and have said peace inhabits those waters. Yet I have turned my steps away to live yet another day. I have asked myself whether suicide would be a crime in one to whom thus only the portals of the other world could be opened. I have done all except presenting myself as a soldier or duelist, an object of destruction to no, not my fellow mortals, and therefore I have shrunk away. They are not my fellows, the inextinguishable power of life in my frame and their ephemeral existence place us wide as poles asunder. I could not raise a hand against the meanest or the most powerful among them. Thus, I have lived on for many a year, alone and weary of myself, desirous of death, yet never dying, immortal immortal. Neither ambition nor avarice can enter my mind, and the ardent love that gnaws at my heart, never to be returned, never to find an equal in which to expend itself, lives there only to torment me. This very day I conceived a design by which I may end all without self-slaughter, without making another man a cane, an expedition which mortal frame can never survive, even endued with the youth and strength that inhabits mine, Thus, I shall put my immortality to the test and rest forever, or return the wonder and benefactor of the human species. Before I go, a miserable vanity has caused me to pen these pages. I would not die and leave no name behind. Three centuries have passed since I quaffed the fatal beverage. Another year shall not last before encountering gigantic dangers, warring with the powers of frost in their home, beset by famine, toil, and tempest. I healed this body, too tenacious a cage for a soul which thirsts for freedom to the destructive elements of air and water. Or if I survive, my name shall be recorded as one of the most famous among the sons of men. In my task achieved, I shall adopt more resolute means and by scattering and annihilating the atoms that compose my frame, set at liberty, the life imprisoned within and so cruelly prevented from soaring from this dim earth to a sphere more congenial to its immortal essence.
2: Hi, Jeremy! Oh my gosh, that was so good! Congratulations! I I really thought that that was a, a really great read, and I feel like you really Goodness, Megan. accomplished the the variances within this character. So thank you for thank you for me, and thank you for the listeners as well. Um, you know, classic literature is is always um, a little bit harder than perhaps modern literature. This this. This uh, story was written in 1833. So um, we're talking 200 years ago, different cadences, different, a whole whole nother world at that time. So uh, when you're jumping into classic literature, it's not always the easiest path to understand Ooh. and to communicate, but sure, I
1: sure think- Sure is that way. Like Megan, I had, <laughs> I had flashbacks of my teacher, John Wilson being like, you must understand
2: Greek and Shakespeare to act. And I'm like, shit. Well, that's that's a point. But, you know, I think I think you you definitely pulled off and Marine says. Jeremy, you are a gifted performer, great reading of the mortal immortal, you, and a thought provoking piece. Wow. So thank you, Maureen. Thank That's you so for that. Nice. That's really nice. Yeah. So while Jeremy is recovering from this yes, traumatic please. reading experience, I'm going to just give you guys a little bit of um, background on Mary Shelley. If you're not familiar with, with her, she is best known for her novel, Frankenstein. And she was married to the poet Percy Shelley, who was among the romantic poets um lord byron and others so she she ran in very um, popular circles at the time um so mary shelley was born mary goodwin and 19- I like that name too in 1797 so at you know in the early 1800s she was writing stuff like frankenstein which was which was one of the sort of first you know, novel sci-fi novels of that time It's just a different sort of genre for people to be to be writing, and especially young women like like Mary Shelley. And uh, she has a bit of a um, salacious past. Oh, okay. yes, um, about a that. lot of a lot of uh, juicy juicy gossip of the time was that at seventeen she ran away with Percy Shelley, who was married, and because she was pregnant, and so they ran away to France and. Um, it it ended in tragedy. Her first daughter was actually born premature and died in France. And they came back to England uh, once Percy Shelley's wife died from suicide. So it was a very, it was a very traumatic time. Um, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of tragedy and a lot of death in her, in her very early life. But and even when her husband, Percy Shelley passed away, she, she sort of dedicated herself to raising their son, and um, focusing on becoming a writer. And uh, not only is she the the author of many novels, including Frankenstein, she is also the author of many short stories, um, I found that she actually published about a story a year, if not more,
0: wow. uh,
2: throughout throughout her her career. So she she really did quite well for herself. And um, one one more interesting tidbit is her, her parents also have um, she comes from very interesting stock. Her father was William Goodwin who was um, a political anarchist of the time. So she grew up in these sort of political anarchist circles, which was Percy Shelley was a part of, and that's how they became acquainted. And then her mother was um, a a hardcore feminist of the time, feminist in the sense of like, you know, men and women should be equal and treated equal and treated as reasonable beings on equal footing. And was was one of the, the founding mothers of the of women's rights and women's oh, crazy in the 1700s which i which i think is a is amazing that there's been women fighting for our rights for 300 years so yes. i'm like yes yes ladies fantastic that's amazing so so she has a quite the quite the interesting past and i think that's why i i think we see some of those those themes coming into this story a little bit like like bits and pieces, I was thinking about her mother sort of um, advocating for women's rights and for um, this sort of idea that men and women are equal. And- yeah,
1: we've been scandalous on our own own right. You know what we
2: did. What did we do? Cranky. (gasps) Oh, well, you know, um, we don't have Cranky tonight. Oh, Cranky- Unfortunately, Cranky- cranky Cranky is not present. Um, I am have been uh, broadcasting from Mississippi for those who oh, don't know. Right. And um, Cranky is actually not in my possession at this moment. So Jeremy and I are just gonna be like babbling on for quite quite some time. Like I've been doing, I feel like I've been talking for like- Oh, we minutes.
1: just lost our, all our listeners. I'm just kidding. They're still there.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just scared Megan a little bit. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so um one thing that I that I did want to say is that I feel like when you look at Mary Shelley's work as like a a group of work together, I think her her one of her strongest themes is this theme that you know humanity's downfall is when it loses its sympathy and its empathy for others. I mean, you see that in Frankenstein with the monster and with Frankenstein's monster and then I think you also see it in the story where where our where our protagonist when he's disconnected from humanity is when he's at his lowest.
1: I wish I had my oh I do have my phone. Megan, keep talking. Um, keep talking Can about you this though. Set a timer. No no no. <laughs> keep talking about this because like oh, okay. I actually posted a Mary Shelley quote. That's oh no okay. I just found it. Exactly. No man chooses evil because it is evil. He only mistakes it for happiness. The good he seeks, Mary mm. Shelley.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I think very rare. I mean, even though there's a lot of stories about it, I think it's very rare that you see evil people who are pure evil doing pure evil things. Like most people act thinking that they're 97%. Acting. Yeah. 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 I mean, they, they have justified their actions and in, in their heads and, um, and believe they are acting in good faith and, and unfortunately their actions create a lot of chaos. And um, so I think that's, that's something that we have to, to really keep in mind. And um, like, I I really gravitated toward that theme in this story, just because we're at a time where I feel like, you know, we, I would like to see more sympathy in our, in our world right now, and just more compassion, as opposed to these individualistic ideas. And, you know, you know, just thinking about ourselves, like, you know, I was like, it's, it's time, it's time to, to kind of think of community more a little bit now, and um, yeah. That's my thoughts.
1: That's your thoughts? Well, we don't even need a cranky today.
2: (laughs) That's about five minutes, right? (laughs) Yeah. I, I, Mary
1: Shelley, like, is known for Frankenstein, but I really, I really did appreciate this piece. Um, I appreciated it more today than I did yesterday when I was rehearsing, (laughs) when I actually understood the words that were coming out of my mouth. But like, she, she, she did a wonderful job at like showing a complexity with life that like makes more sense to me. Like once you talk about like the, the how how many people she lost in her life, like that's even more poignant.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And her mother actually died um, right after giving birth to her. So she did not have a, she did not have her biological mother. She had a, a stepmother that she wow. didn't get along with. Um, so I, I think she was, Probably, I mean I, I I can't speak for Mary Shelley, but I, I can imagine that they're, you know, seeing her work, I would I feel that absence in it, you know, wanting yeah. wanting connection, wanting um to find like that that love, that deep love connection and and with mixed with com- compassion and, and sympathy.
1: I wonder if she I wonder if she felt like that protagonist just watching mm-hmm loved ones just drift mm-hmm. away, you know, and not like I wonder if she ever had thoughts like that. It would be nice to ask her. Mary.
2: Mary where are ya. Mary, where's our Ouija board? Where's our smelling board? don't song? you dare no we mess with that. Just, I yeah, watch we, don't mess many, with-
1: we watch too many horror movies, Megan. We know what happens at the end of a Ouija board.
2: That's right. Trouble. We don't we don't mess with Ouija boards, but yep. uh, if Mary were here today, I would, I think that's a very good question because she was so young when there was all of this death around her. You know, she was 17. She lost a baby. She lost her husband shortly oh, after that. Man. You know, his wife died of, of suicide. I mean, she really, oh my gosh, yeah. she really did have a lot of, of tragedy in her life. And um, so, yeah, that's a very good, that's an astute observation about maybe she is the protagonist. I like that idea.
1: Well, this was good. I, I, I vote. Let's see what the audience says, because I know they didn't like Marie Corelli. Uh, <laughs> but like, audience, let us know if you want us to do another one, excluding me as the actor. Um, uh, we, like, if you just want to see another Mary Shelley, please let us know, because mm-hmm. um, I liked her. I want to bring her back
2: yeah absolutely and And as much as we love doing the stories for these new and up and coming writers and getting their voices out there, we do believe that there's there's a lot to be gained by going back and and looking at these older works and and uh, showcasing their work and their their lives and sort of reconnecting with with what's happened over the last few centuries in writing.
1: yeah, I agree. yeah two so ladies, let's... two dead ladies.
2: Two dead ladies. It sounds know. like a
1: song. Two dead ladies. Two dead Big ladies.
2: waves in the red world. Yeah, it's yeah. a new hit.
1: <laughs> All right. I think I hear I hear the ghost of Cranky telling us
2: to shut up. Uh, okay. Uh. All right. Um, so in honor of Cranky, we're going to be quiet um, and <laughs> along with the show, Megan. Do you want to be the one to tell people our cool news? Oh, yeah. So we had a really great thing happen um, this week. Uh, Last week's episode of It's a Fairy Tale by an author by the name of Ellen Ireland, if you haven't listened to it yet, Um, has been our highest viewed episode ever, which we're at like 900 and something views. So we just wanted to give a huge shout out to Ellen and a shout out to everyone who have watched the show. Michelle for performing. Michelle Murphy, our actress, did a fantastic job. So if you haven't. If you haven't
1: exactly what Megan's saying, you gotta check her witch out. She's just yeah. such a great witch. Somebody hire Michelle to be a witch, please. Yes,
2: yes, please, please. If you're looking for an actress, voice actors, so or a regular so actors, um, Michelle Murphy is is can fill those shoes for sure. Um, so we're very excited about that. Thank you to everyone who watched the show and who's been telling people about the show. Um, we're just so, we were so thrilled that we are up to 95 subscribers. Five our- more and we
1: got our goal. This isn't five. Y'all I need it's to go ten. back to
2: kindergarten. <laughs> five more. Jeremy's I'm holding ten. up both his hands. Yeah, I'm going up both hands. Five more. Yeah, so if you haven't, I think we're okay with yes. 10 though, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. If we get one of five, that's amazing. Um, so thank you to everyone who's already subscribed. We appreciate your support for us and for these writers and their their work. So if you haven't subscribed, though, now's the perfect time because we are five away from our goal. And you, you can individually make Jeremy and I and Mark's little hearts just soar and bring so much joy to us if you get us up to 100 subscribers. So tell your friends. Uh, tell your family tell anyone that you know who loves audiobooks and loves listening to podcasts about us and let them know that we're out there for them to be downloaded on for free. Spotify. we're free. For free we're on Spotify we're on iTunes we're on Amazon we are on stitcher <laughs> uh, and you can download us onto your phone and take us with you wherever you go so whenever you need a story we'll be there for you
1: And if you have any requests, you can use our social media and be like, hey, I know this short story that you should do. And you can use Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with our hashtag NRSS. Podcast. Oh, crap.
2: (laughs) Megan, do you (laughs) want to redo the hashtag? I just, I just filled it in right there. It was great.
1: Wait, just do the whole thing though. So that they're not confused because I'm dumb it's in our podcast.
2: I liked how we just I just filled in for you. I thought that's cool.
1: We we're, we're good. We're connected.
2: <laughs> okay, moving along. Um, what else do we need? Uh So yeah, so if you're if you're stumped for holiday gifts, what are you going to buy Uncle Fred? Well, Jeremy here is making uh goo eyes at um, sad eyes. At an R- in in our
0: no. <laughs> Can somebody sing that song
2: for me, please? So make Jeremy happy. He's sad now, but he'd be really happy if you bought some pillows on our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com. You can find all of our merchandise available uh, for purchase. We have pillows. We have hoodies. We have T-shirts. We have leggings. We have panty packs. We have socks. We have basically anything that you could want. And orange and uh, purple. We are desperate. Just (laughs) kidding. We're not desperate. (laughs) We sound desperate, but we We, aren't. We sound sound desperate. But the whole point is to bring you joy and to bring us joy too. Totally. Um, So uh, please check out all of that. Uh, Also, if you want to learn more about my individual work, you can go to my website, MeganAMorrison.com and sign up for notifications for any time I post something new. And Jeremy...
1: You could do the same with me, but don't use Megan's website.
2: I got no my own.
1: I'm an independent boy. Mine is right. jeremyraystories.com. And then you think that I had this memorized. I just blanked. <laughs> 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 every every week, like, uh, you can subscribe and get a new micro
2: story to your email. Mm, they're very great. You don't want to miss one of these stories. And they're super short. When he says micro, he means micro. You're so small. They're, they're tiny. You can read them, you know. While you're drinking your coffee, while you're brushing your teeth, very quick.
1: You basically read them before you even read them.
2: It's it's true. Like before like you open, the open them
1: up, you're like, oop, I already got it. Don't have to. You open, open the email, boom,
2: you're done. Boom, that's it. Goodbye.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, last thing, we should tell them about our, our next episode because I'm really excited about it.
2: I'm excited about this too. We have um, a wonderful story called "Quality of Life" by a writer named Christine Sneed. Christine is a fantastic writer. Um, she has several novels and I'm just so excited to be able to showcase her short story. It's, um, please make sure that you tune in next week because you do not want to miss the story. And we have Michelle Murphy coming back to perform it. So if you enjoyed Michelle's performance of, um, last week, then uh, please come back for a very different story, but, uh, I know Michelle's going to kill it. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate you sticking it out where we're just rambling on because we don't have cranky.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bye. We love you. Bye. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story. Cause no one reads short stories Funny, sad, or gory No one reads short stories anymore Yes, no one reads short stories